Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But, then, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen. For all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, you, who, is dis, di, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Thank you, Jim. And you may be seated. All right, friends. Well, I do want to echo how excited we are about the Who is My Neighbor class. Um, Jenny and I have been talking around that class for literally years now, <laughs> and the pandemic interrupted it. Uh, but I am really looking forward to seeing our community formed in this way that will be a stretch. Just even hearing Jenny talk about it, I'm like, oh, this is a stretch for me, you know, and, and that's good. We're formed in the stretching. So, um, yes, well, this morning we're talking about uh, that, that theme of lostness becoming foundness, uh, that which is lost being found. 
And uh, if you're thinking we just talked about the prodigal son like a few months ago in Lent, you are right, we did. Uh, And so it's interesting, this story shows up in the lectionary twice. Uh, The lectionary is this cycle of readings, it's a three-year cycle, Tons of churches across traditions, across cultures, uh, and across time use the lectionary all to guide the same passages on the same Sunday. So as we look at a given passage, we know that there are literally, you know, thousands if not millions of churches around the world using the same scriptures to guide their worship. It's a really beautiful thing. We don't always follow the lectionary, but a lot of times we're informed by it. And uh, so it only talks about the prodigal son story twice, and it does so both times in the same year. So if we don't get it now, we don't get it for another three years, and it's just too good, too beautiful, too layered, too rich of a story to let it pass by. So we're hitting it in Lent, which uh, picks up on the themes in that story around repentance, around wilderness, around penitence, around uh, fasting, and then we're picking it up again now in Easter to talk about the other side of the story, new life, resurrection, being found. We're going to talk about it this week. Really, we'll just get the first part of Luke 15 this week. Next week, we're going to dive into the prodigal son story itself. We'll look at how it's a story of three deaths and a resurrection. And then in a few weeks after that, we'll talk about the family culture, the family systems that are happening in this family. We get this fascinating insight into a fight that is happening inside the father's house. And I think it will be really instructive for us as we think about the fights happening in our families, in our culture, in our society, in our churches. How do we live life together in the father's house? And that's gonna really inform some important things that we're gonna be sharing at the end of May around how we hope to seek and shape this community moving into the fall. And so lots of good, exciting things to talk about. But uh, yeah, the lecture passage for today uh, actually is on John 21, and we're not doing it so that we can talk about the prodigal son story. I love John 21 so much, I'm writing my entire dissertation on it, but we're not doing it because the prodigal son story is the story, right? And so that's why we're spending so much time on it, and I'm excited to do that here over the next few weeks. I want to begin with this idea that it is possible for one person's celebration to be deeply annoying to someone else, right? Like, have you ever gone to lay out at a pool and to just soak in some peace and quiet, and here comes the person with the country music boombox next to you, and they're like in a whole different headspace than you're in, right? And he's like, I just wanted some peace and quiet, right? Or have you ever put your kids to bed? I know all the parents will feel this one. You finally get that blessed child asleep, and someone rings the doorbell, and it's like, I will hurt you for ringing my doorbell at this precise moment. When I was a kid, it was the 4th of July, and uh, my dad worked really hard. My meek, mild-mannered, gentlest human being you'll ever meet, Father, put, put me to bed, worked really hard, finally got me to sleep, and of course, that's the moment the neighbors begin shooting off all the fireworks. And, uh, you know, it's 7 o'clock, they're shooting off the fireworks. He's like, okay, it's okay, it's okay. Nine o'clock, they're shooting off the fire where he said, it's okay, it's okay. Eleven o'clock, they're shooting off the fire. He's getting more and more angry. At one o'clock in the morning, I remember it to this day, my 
incredibly gentle father flings open the doors to our back deck, and I hear him yelling from my bedroom, if you don't stop it, I'm calling the police, <laughs> right? And uh, it was, he just snapped. He went round the bend, right? Uh, because, <laughs> and and uh, because it's possible for somebody's celebration to be deeply annoying to someone else. That's the scene that we get in Luke 15. Jesus is having a party, and the religious leaders are not happy about it, Right? He's having a party, he's sitting and having a meal, he's welcoming the sinners and the tax collectors, and they are grumbling about it. They are not happy about it because he's invited the wrong people to the party, right? Jesus is often in trouble with the religious leaders, and here he is in trouble again. He's invited the wrong people to the party, and uh, they want to know what his justification is for hanging out with those people. And Jesus, who I think is asked about 200 questions in the gospel and only responds to three of them directly, Jesus does what he does. He launches into a story. Because rather than answer your question, Jesus just tells you a story, right? And the story, this parable, it sits in your heart and it feels innocuous. And then like three days later, it explodes like a time bomb. And you go, oh, that's what he was talking about, right? And this is the the art of Jesus' subversive storytelling. And so Jesus, as he always does, he launches into a story. He gives three back-to-back stories. You know you're in trouble when you get three in a row from Jesus. And all three have to do with something lost being found, right? There is a lost sheep, and it is found by the shepherd. If you go to that first slide, yeah, thank you. This lost sheep. There is a woman. She's lost a coin, that coin representing probably one-tenth of her dowry. She's frantically searching the house to find it. There is a man who has two sons. And at their core, these are not just stories of lostness. They are stories of great belonging. And the accent in these stories is not on what's lost. We title them in our Bibles, you know, the lost sheep or the lost coin or the prodigal son. But the accent is not on what is lost. It is on who is rigorously and relentlessly searching to find that which was lost, to seek and save that which is lost, to bring it home and set things right again. And so this is how Jesus shows us who God is. He gives us these three stories to say, if you want to know why I'm hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors, let me tell you some stories about how life is and who God is. And that's when he launches into this. And they become these stories of great belonging. The lost sheep belongs to the shepherd. The lost coin belongs to the woman. The lost son belongs in his father's embrace. And when the lost thing is found, a party is thrown. All three stories end with a party being thrown because that which was found is worth celebrating. It mattered enough to celebrate. And this is how God is described through the mind of Jesus. It's what makes God tick, and this is good news. Good news. Unless, of course, you cannot admit that you are lost. It's good news to everybody who can admit their lostness But it actually is a separating thing for those who refuse to admit their lostness because they have alien. This God is seeking to save that which is lost, which means if you cannot admit that you are lost, you have fundamentally separated yourself from the God who is looking for you, right? 
And that's why these religious leaders are so angry. They don't understand why he's hanging out with those people who should not be at the party. Not only does he tolerate the sinners, the scripture says he welcomes the sinners. He invites them in. He hangs out with them. He enjoys being in their company, right? And isn't it interesting, if we were to look in Matthew, Jesus says that it is the same tax collectors and sinners, he uses the exact same phrase, who are entering into the kingdom of God before the religious leaders, right? They're getting in first, right? How is that possible? The religious leaders have their piety and their practices and their orthodoxy and their obedience, and those things matter, right? Those things are important, and yet, despite those things, they are the last ones in line. How could that be? And I think perhaps part of it is that at least those who are sinners know they're lost. They know they're lost. Their condition is such that they have eyes to see their need for rescue. They have no merit badges. They have no props. They have no resumes. They have no resources. They have no solutions or superiority left. They are lost. And Jesus seems to be saying that we have to let go of our rightness in order to have eyes to see. We have to let go of the sense that getting every box checked and every uh, thing right, every practice, every theological position right, the sense that getting those things right secures our spot in the Father's house, we have to let that go because it's actually impeding our ability to experience the rescue of the God who comes for the lost ones, right? And even more scandalously, Jesus seems to be saying that, that the sense of superiority and security is getting in the way. And so to be sought and saved by grace implies that we have to relinquish all claims other than this one. We were lost, we have been found, and all is grace. All is grace. And this is something that I think a lot of us on our face would agree with, right? Like, like yeah, I know that I am, I am saved by grace and it's not my behavior, it's not my goodness that checks the boxes. We know this, right? But I think a lot of times it becomes more subtle and at a much deeper layer in our heart. If we actually sit with it, we will find that we are so prone into the, if I can just do dot, dot, and dot a little bit better, clean up my act a little bit more, prop up my, my standing in the world just a little bit more, then that will help me be at ease in the Father's house. So we have to look beneath the surface in all of these things. And so when Paul says that the only thing that matters is to be found in Christ, found like the lost sheep, found like the lost coin, found like the lost son, he is not saying that the behavior of the tax collectors and sinners doesn't matter. He's not saying all behaviors are washed, don't worry about it. No, 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 of course the behavior matters, right? Of course, spiritual formation is, is a huge part of what we're about as a church. Our behavior ought to become more and more Christ-like. But this is never the, re, the thing that gets us into the Father's house. It is the overflow of the fact that we are loved. We are in the Father's house, right? And if we want to be formed into the image of Jesus, it's not going to come by trying harder or thinking the right things. It's going to come as we realize we are loved enough to be rescued. And out of the overflow of that love, we become lovers ourselves in the way of the one who has loved us. And so... Jesus, when he describes God, seems to be describing a God who is relentlessly in pursuit of all that, is all that is lost. And when he describes those who have eyes to see it, it is those who are the lost, the least, the little, the last, the lonely. 
It's those who are backed into a corner. It's those who are dead to rights. It's those who are prone to wander. Um, I run, uh, or I used to run a company, uh, a web design company. I guess I technically still do, but I don't really do anything with it anymore. But for 12 years before I moved here, I ran a web design company. And my whole job was to get clients, you know, book clients, <laughs> keep clients, uh, keep the clients happy. What was not my job was losing 99 clients in order to keep the one, <laughs> right? This is a bad business strategy Jesus is endorsing here. You will get fired if you lose 99 clients in order to keep one client, right? And so when Jesus says to the religious leaders of the day, how many of you, if you had 100 sheep and 99 of them are safe and one wanders away, how many of you would not go chase down the, the one? I, I imagine most of them are like, not me. I wouldn't do that. That's a terrible idea. It's illogical. I'm going to go out of business if I do that. The only way this makes sense is if Jesus has a different goal than to keep you in business. Maybe Jesus wants you to go out of business. Maybe Jesus is in the business of saving that which is lost, and therefore the prerequisite must be that there is lostness in my story enough that I am able to receive being rescued and found. And here we are desperately trying to prevent any lostness from happening in our story, and yet we cannot allow ourselves to be led until we're lost. Why would I follow you if I know the way? Right? But when we get lost enough, we're actually allowed to be led. And so Jesus knows that the 99 sheep are actually not found, though they seem found. He's going to go chase all of them down one by one, too, when they scatter, when they run away. Right? Lostness is the condition that the shepherd is most drawn to. Robert Kappen puts it this way in his brilliant book on the parables. He says, even if all 100 sheep should get lost... It will not be a problem for this bizarrely good shepherd because he is first and foremost in the business of finding the lost. Give him a world with a hundred out of every hundred souls lost. Give him, in other words, the world full of losers that is the only real world we have, and it will do just fine. Lostness is exactly his cup of tea. He saves losers and only losers. He raises the dead and only the dead. And he rejoices more of the last and the least and the little than over all the winners in the world. That alone is what a lo the losing world of ours needs to hear, even though we can't stand the thought of it. Wow. Wow. Okay. And then we come to the most compelling portrait of good news that the world has ever heard, the story of the prodigal son. And... Uh, Jesus tells that story to show us who God is, and, and we'll get into it more next week. Uh, and I know many of you know it, and you might be like, I know it. I think we, we know it up here, right? Every one of us needs another layer of knowing it in here. There's never enough of that. There's always a new layer of receiving this good news more deeply. And this story begins with this brazen request. The son's like, hey, give me my share of the, the inheritance, right? Which is something he does not actually... Uh, he's not entitled to in the first place. And the request is so insulting, the father could have easily been like, no, I'm not giving you my stuff. How dare you insult me by coming to me while I'm still living and asking for that which will only be yours, A, by grace, and B, when I'm dead, right? Like, don't insult me by doing that now. He could have refused, he could have resisted, and that would have controlled the son's behavior, it would have gotten the job done in terms of cleaning up the act of the son. 
It would have conformed him into the behavior. But the father knows better. He's a wise father. And though he knows the son is making a poor choice, he trusts that the son's upcoming lostness is going to be the very thing that will lead to him being able to come home so that the lostness will not get the final word. The father wants relationship more than coercion, and so he allows the son to make a poor choice. It involves suffering for the father, but that is how he's going to bring the son home again. And so we know how the story goes. Soon enough, the young son, he's in the pig slop, he's starving, he's wishing to be the slave. It's the ultimate picture of what Jesus is doing in Luke 15. The young son is the last, the lost, the least, the lonely, the little. He is the one with no merit badges. He is the sinner, the tax collector. He has no props and no resume and no excuses and no efforts and no way to earn a way home. And as it turns out, that is precisely the position he had to come to to be found. It is the Good Friday of the pig slop that allows there to be an Easter morning in the Father's embrace. And the Father, he's just sitting there. He's just ready. He's on his pins and needles, waiting for the son to choose to come home, waiting till he sees him just crest over the horizon so he can run and embrace him again. There's this theological notion, if you pull out your systematic theology book off the bookshelf, it's called impassibility. And the idea is this, that God is above pathos, that God is uh, above experiencing any emotions, that because God is not causally dependent, he is therefore neither affected nor impacted nor moved by humanity in any way. And this is something that is, you know, written about the nature of God. Uh, and perhaps at an ontological level, I understand that, sure, sure. But if you're telling me the heart of God is not moved by humanity, then I want you to take that up with the sheep that ran away, right? I want you to have a conversation with the son that ran away. Because I'm telling you, the heart of God, yes, he can stand alone. He does not need us the way my son thinks he needs a new monster truck, right? And God is not desperately codependent on us. He's differentiated from us. He, he, he can live without us, but he is desperate to be with us. He is desperate to be with us, to be with his children. When you have children, you put yourself in the position that your heart can break. I remember when my oldest was four o'clock, one day she decided, four o'clock, that doesn't make any sense, four years old. <laughs> it's been a long day, guys. Four years old. Four years old, she decided to play hide and seek, and she didn't tell us. So for 10 minutes, she was gone. She was four years old. It was snowing. There was a foot of snow in our backyard. We lived in Indiana at the time. And I had no shoes on, and I am running through the backyard, knee-deep in snow, screaming her name, because I don't know where she is. And I can't find her. And the terror and the longing in my heart for my daughter don't tell me God's above being moved. Don't tell, uh, no. God is searching for the lost ones. The heart of the good news is that God is not ashamed to love us so much that though he may not require us, he desires us. So much that though he does not need us to exist, he chose us to exist. 
Though he does not rely on us, he won't relent until he finds us. Though he can't be manipulated by us, he is not above looking ridiculous in order to pursue us down dusty roads where wayward children come home. He does not ontologically require us, but he has relationally invited us into the overflow of the community of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so that we have a room in this great house of love. And if that's not true, I don't know what we're doing here, right? That's what this is about. The Father is bringing us home. And the picture of the God of the Bible throughout the whole scriptures is the picture of a God who is pursuing you. And what we do impacts him and what he does impacts us. And it's a relationship. This is the whole book of Hosea, right? This, this prostitute wife has, has cheated on you, but go pursue her anyway. God is chasing us. It's the story of Jesus born into a dirty, humble stable. He's chasing us. It's he who knew no sin becoming sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He's chasing us. It's the father diving through the person of Jesus into the pit of hell the way that a a dad might dive into a pool to rescue a drowning child. He's chasing us and he wraps us around his neck and he carries us home. And when he gets us home again, he calls his friends over and he says, let's party because that which was lost has been found that which was dead is alive and it's worth celebrating and that's who our god is and that's who our god is that's what easter is all about and so we'll have more to say about how the father responds next week we'll talk about the brother a little bit more in detail the older brother but i want to spend a few minutes on him as we wrap this up because he's the reason the story's told you know we've we focus so much on the younger son but the reason jesus tells the story is because the the religious leaders are on him, right, about hanging out with those people. And so the real punch of the story is the older brother because he is the living embodiment of the religious leaders. And he hears the music and the dancing and he smells the fatted calf on the grill. And how does he react? Who invited that guy to this party? And all of his categories have labels like fairness and justice and deserving and earning. And it does not compute that the father would throw a party for that guy. It's so scandalous, even on its face, but even further, looking deep down, like without permission, the father has taken what is actually the older son's fatted calf, right? Because he had already given everything to the older son. It's the older, it's the religious leader's fatted calf, and without permission, the father takes that fatted calf away from the religious leader, kills it, that it might be offered to the sinner who has come home, and this does not compute to the religious leaders, and it does not compute to us, but God is at work bringing dead things to life, and we should party like he is. We should party like he is, and so we come right back to where we started that what the younger son had going for him was that he knew he was lost. His story became such that he knew he could not make it home on his own. He had blown it so badly that there was no way he would make the grade in a world of justice and earning. And the twist is that that is precisely what gave him the eyes to see God's rescue coming for him. And his collision with the gospel causes him to give up the game entirely And to say, the whole story is this, I was lost, but I have been brought home again around the arms of my father. And so I'll invite us into a moment of prayer now. I just ask you to take a moment and just 
envision the Father embracing you. We'll sing a song in a few minutes that is called Reckless Love. I don't think we've ever sung it here at the parish before. There was this big debate about it in the church world because it says that God is reckless in his love. And people couldn't handle that. How religious leader of us that we're all upset about using the word reckless to describe God's love. But that day running in the backyard looking for McKenna you better believe I was reckless. Nothing else, Matt. I would have run into the street without a moment's notice. Such is the way God pursues you. And so, Jesus, we thank you for this good news. That you recklessly headlong throw yourself from heaven to earth, from earth to hell, far side of the shore so that wherever we go you might be there with us thank you for this good news in jesus name amen